This might be the best quarterback draft class in years, and we have huge franchises like Chicago, New England, and Washington with a ton on the line. My name is Craig Horlbeck, and I host the Ringer NFL Draft Show with Danny Kelly, Ben Solak, and Danny Heifetz. We cover trades, free agency, the draft, obviously, everything. We'll tell you all about which quarterbacks are going to be good, which quarterbacks are going to be bad, like Kenny Pickett, and if there's a diamond in the rough, like Brock Purdy. Follow us at the Ringer NFL Draft Show on Spotify. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like 3-Minute Markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of this episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus in DC and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett, recording after the Celtics just dismantle the Memphis Grizzlies. Not a very entertaining basketball game. Get to that in a second here. My buddy Lou Merloni from the Nesson broadcast, from the WEI broadcast, is going to join us in just a little bit as well. We'll get into Theo Epstein back. He is back with the Red Sox. I absolutely love this. So we'll get into this with Lou in just a little bit. And also some of the things the Red Sox haven't done this offseason so far. Will Theo change things? We'll get into all that with Lou in just a little bit, and some leftover thoughts from the Patriots, some reporting around the Pats, and maybe people they're adding to the coaching staff, so we'll get into all that as well. There's not much you can actually take from the Celtics win over the Memphis Grizzlies. Jordan Walsh having his first dunk, I mean, that was cool as a member of the Celtics, like you get to see Jordan Walsh. I guess other than that, really the night was about Marcus Smart, right? Because Marcus Smart, unfortunately in his return, doesn't even play because he's still dealing with, of course, he had the finger injury. But my whole thing with Marcus and the take I had coming out of the game and coming out of the day is I almost feel bad for him, right? Because it's like now he's on this team that this is a lost year for him and the Grizzlies. And look, they can get back to being a really good team next year. They have John Morant. They have Jaron Jackson Jr. That's a good team. Like they can make some noise in the West going forward. It's not like Marcus went to an awful team, but he was sort of the first guy of the rebuild. If you think about it in 2014, when they drafted him in the lottery, he was the longest tenured member of the Celtics. And then they move on from him. And he gave us a lot of good moments. He also had a lot of moments where he made you scratch your head, right? I mean, how many shots in the postseason did he take? We're like, what are you doing, man? And then this occasionally he'd hit him, but it was time to move on from Marcus. And when you look at it, you get a guy in Chris Sops Porzingis that hopefully can change the fortunes of this team when they get into the playoffs and when they need to score late in games, when they need to go to something different. So I think most Celtics fans, even the biggest Marcus Smart fans, would admit that this was the right move. I mean, I told you from day one that I thought this is a great move. And it also freed up a lot of stuff with Derek White, where Derek White's having his best season. It's not a coincidence that Marcus Smart isn't here. And you also factor in that Derek White is always closing out games now, which wasn't the case even going back to last year in the postseason, right? So he just clarified things. I feel like roles are more defined now. But the reason I say I feel bad for Marcus is just, it feels like the final piece to getting this team to being the best version of itself was you had to move on for Marcus. And in some sense, that has to be tough for him because he did give so much to the organization. And like I said, it's the right move to move on from, but in that sense, I feel bad because imagine like you put in all this time with this organization and then this is their best chance to win a championship and Marcus isn't part of that. It just it stinks from a personal level for him. Like I said, from a business standpoint, from a team standpoint, I was on board with moving on from Marcus. I totally was. 
And I love the team that they currently have. They wouldn't win a championship if they just brought back what they had a season ago. They needed to make some changes, and Porzingis was the biggest change they needed to make. The one thing I will say, though, as it pertains to Marcus being back in town, I thought the video tribute was awesome. It was really well done, and I'm not a big like video tribute guy. Marcus definitely deserved one, but remember, the Celtics do it for everybody. Hey, Kelly Olynyk got one. I get Game 7 Kelly, but I feel like sometimes too many people get him. Marcus definitely deserves one. I thought it was really well done. I forgot about until today that block that he had on Norman Powell in the bubble. Just a ridiculous play. So I thought that was cool. I thought the slow motion kip up that he did, I thought it was cool they slow-mo that. So I thought overall, glad that Marcus seems like he's in good spirits. And I do give him credit because he was saying today in his press availability that essentially he understood what the Celtics were doing. He just wished that he was given a heads up, but he doesn't hold any ill will with the Celtics for trading him. And a lot of guys would be pissed off still that they were traded, right? So I give Marcus credit for that. He said all the right things at his press availability today. But as for the game, so you look at this starting lineup for the Grizzlies. They had Jacob Gilliard, undrafted from Richmond. Trey Jameson, undrafted from Clemson and UAB. Gigi Jackson, second round pick. David Roddy, who was the 23rd overall pick. And Kennard. Kennard was the only lottery pick back when he was on Detroit. And you look at these guys, you had a bunch of two-way guys, Scotty Pippen Jr., G.G. Jackson, two-way guys, Gilliard's a two-way guy, and then you had a couple of guys on 10-day contracts. So I can't really take anything out of this game from a Celtics perspective. The one thing I will say is one of the trends that's been going on with this team lately, and like I said, I'm not taking anything from tonight into consideration with this game, although Tatum was awesome. I mean, Tatum was phenomenal. It looked like essentially it was shooting practice for Tatum in this particular game where he hit six threes, okay? So Tatum was awesome in this game, but in terms of just one issue that I've seen with the Celtics over this past stretch, now obviously they win this game over Memphis, but so this is a team that doesn't get to the rim much, and we've talked about that throughout the season, but the big thing to me is just the free throw attempts because they're never going to get to the rim a lot. So if you look at the first 26 games of the season, they took just 20.9 per game, which was 24th. The offensive rating was 118.26. So even though they're not getting to the free throw line a lot, their offensive rating is still good because they hit a ton of threes. The next 15 games, though, this is after the Warriors loss. They go from 20.9 free throws per game to 26, which was fifth in the NBA during that stretch. And their offensive rating during those 15 games was 124.2 second. So essentially, you go up significantly as it pertains to your free throws, And your offense goes from a 118.2, which is a really good number, to 124.2, which was second in the NBA during that stretch. So the point being, when they get to the free throw line, they're basically impossible to stop. If you go to the last eight games prior to this game against Memphis, it's 18.4 free throws, 28th in the NBA. So they have not been getting to the free throw line at all lately. And you look at that offensive rating, it's 118.9, which is seventh. So it's very similar to what they were doing in the first 26 games. Where they have to live is where they were in that 15-game stretch post-Warriors, where, yeah, they're taking a lot of threes, and they're always going to take a lot of threes. It's a good thing to do. But they also need to be able to get to the free throw line because the at-rim frequency is just never going to be high. It's just not who they are as a team, and it's not the best quality in the world. But, I mean, you could certainly have bigger problems than that. But I just think the free throw numbers are the big one to pay attention to. Oh, one other thing I wanted to give Missoula credit for here is, so I talked a lot at the beginning of the season about how much double big we would see. And what I've noticed is like the offense was not good at the beginning of the year with Al and Porzingis on the court together. So if you look at prior to the Warriors loss, the first 17 games of the season, the Celtics had Horford and Porzingis on the court together for 188 minutes. In those minutes, they had a 111.1 offensive rating, which would be about 26 in the NBA. So their offense was bad. Their defensive rating was good, 108.4. So they had what? uh, Plus 2.8 net rating. Okay, so that's not a great number. The good thing is you were winning those minutes because your defense was good, but the offense was horrible. If you look at since the Warriors loss, and not counting this game tonight because the advanced numbers have not finalized, 11 games with Al and Porzingis on the court together, 148 minutes, uh, 125.7 offensive rating, 
105.8 defensive rating, which is basically you're outscoring teams by 20 points per 100. But the big number there is the offensive rating goes from 111.1 all the way up to 125.7. So you go from being the 26th offense in the NBA with Allen Porzingis on the court together to over this last stretch, over 11 games, better than the league's best offense. So I give Joe credit. They're doing some different things where Al's really involved as a spacer more so than anything else. And I think they've really figured out that pick and roll dynamic. I think Porzingis has done a much better job passing out of the roll. And Al's an elite shooter. So you should be able to play well with these two guys on the floor offensively. So like what I was looking at at the beginning of the season, I'm thinking to myself like, yeah, this doesn't work with the double big. But the more and more that you watch this and you watch those two guys play together, it works perfectly defensively and offensively because offensively, Al can space the floor, hit threes. And if Al's ever the screener, which they rarely use Al as the screener, Porzingis is a spacer too. So you have two bigs that are good shot blockers. Al's still a good shot blocker at his age. And when you have Al out there and Al can cover a traditional big man, it gives Porzingis the ability to roam on defense. So the defense is always going to be good. But because Al, and I think part of the reason those numbers were down, Al was not shooting great at the beginning of the season. And as that perked up, I think that's why the offensive numbers have gone up with those two guys on the court. So I love the fact that they now, this is a really good lineup for them that they can use that double big situation. All right, we'll get a lot more into the Celtics this week. Of course, the trading deadline coming up on Thursday. Coming up next, I want to get into this Theo Epstein story as Theo is back with the Red Sox. We'll get to that next with Lou Merloni. Happy Super Bowl to all who celebrate from FanDuel, America's number one sports book. If you're like me, Super Bowl Sunday is all about scoring the best seat on the couch, grabbing your favorite football snacks, and placing some super bets. All right, now I'm looking at another one of these specials that FanDuel's offering. So how about this? Isaiah Pacheco to run for 30 yards in each half. That's plus 200. And part of the reason I like that is the Chiefs have to run the football. And one of the ways you can run against the Niners is to the outside. We saw that with Aaron Jones with the Packers. Now, Pacheco's more of an in-between-the-tackles guy, but I do think that They're really going to try to stay on the field, keep all those weapons from San Francisco off the field. So I like that. Pacheco, 30 rushing yards in each half for plus 200. FanDuel has so many ways for you to end the season with a W or two or three. Not only can you bet on who will win Super Bowl 58, but FanDuel also has bets for which players will score a touchdown, how many points will be scored, and so much more. If you're new to FanDuel, join today and you'll get $200 in bonus bets when you win your first $5 bet. Just visit FanDuel.com slash Pike to sign up. That's FanDuel.com slash Pike. Make every moment more with FanDuel, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit TheRinger.com slash RG. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued as non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Joining us now, you see him on the Nesson broadcast. You hear him on WEI calling games for the Red Sox. It is Lou Merloni. Lou, what's going on, man? How are you? Are we doing metric, man? I'm doing well. You know, I did this. I did the pod on Thursday, and one yeah. of the things I got into is how the Red Sox offseason keeps getting worse. And then on Friday, it's like, holy crap, Theo's back. Finally, we got some good news with the Red Sox, Lou. Yeah, and, and I think everybody is so down on the year that, like, they, nobody wanted to kind of take it in. You know, nobody wanted to react positively because if you did, you just you work for the company or whatever. But um, for me, it's like uh, this is a good thing. Theo Epstein just being involved in the room. I know there's a lot of back and forth and what the job title actually is, and it's amazing. I get excited. Like, he's not working. He's just working FSG. He's not going to have any influence. They're not going to do anything positive for the Red Sox. And I think if you have that opinion, I think you have no idea who Theo Epstein is. You have no idea how much he loves baseball and loves this organization and cares about him. And I expect him, you know, year one, I don't know, kind of ease into the job and see the different areas. But uh, I think he's going to have a lot of involvement here with the Red Sox. Well, and one of the things that sticks out to me about this is you think in recent history with this team where – Theo obviously had to push ownership when he wasn't part of the ownership group, but he was just running the baseball team where, hey, we have to sign this guy or we have to make this type of trade. And I felt like when Dave Dombrowski was here, because of his reputation, had won a World Series, had been one of the division every year with the Tigers, took them to a World Series, that he could do that. He could convince ownership like, hey, we need to spend this money or we need to trade for this player. Like he had that 
ability. But then you bring in Bloom, and this is not meant to be an indictment on Heim because we've criticized Heim enough over the past couple of years, mm-hmm. but he doesn't have that gravitas. And I would argue that Craig Breslow, this is his first year on the job. He's not going to have the ability, and maybe that's part of the job, but now Theo's here. So Theo's the guy that can sort of relay this message to yeah. John Henry, to Tom Warner, where it's like, listen, guys, we have to pay this pitcher. We have to trade for this player. And with Breslow, I feel like that job was going to be similar to Heim, not similar to what they had with Dombrowski. So I think it's a major win when it comes to that, just having that guy that knows how to run a baseball team now being part of ownership group and having some empathy or sympathy for the guy now running the team to say, okay, let me get you what you need. Yeah, I agree. And I also think there's some sensitivity too, as far as describing exactly what the Epstein's role is going to be in this organization. You know, um, you know, when they hired Breslow, I think we had talked about it, you know, is the senior, senior advisor going to come in with him? You know, I think he's a smart guy. I think he can handle the job. But let's face it, you can't put a price on experience. Someone that's actually been there before. So it took a while, but I feel like this is kind of where it's at. Like, you know, kind of like this advisor for Craig Breslow. And and even a middleman between John Henry and, say, Craig Breslow. And, and that's where the sensitivity comes in, maybe for a guy like Sam Kennedy, you know, as far as being the president and CEO of the Red Sox. So... Um, but you're absolutely right. You know, I, I, there was um, actually Zach Scott, I think, was on a podcast uh, with Cotillo and uh, McAdam. And he had been in the front office and obviously before he went to the Mets. And he had said something that I had heard three or four or five different people have told me that sometimes John Henry needs to be kind of pushed. You know, he needs mm. to be convinced to spend money. And obviously Dombrowski could, Theo could, Hall of Fame, you know, GMs. You mentioned Hein, how about Ben Cherry? You know, I don't think those guys yeah. are coming in the chest. So or a pound in the table that we need this guy because John lives in a, in an analytical world. Right. And when you start looking at some of the analytics on some of these big contracts, they don't work. You know, maybe it was, maybe you go back to being burned by guys like Crawford or, or Kyle Crawford or, or I don't know, Hanley, Pablo, whatever it may be. Those weren't huge. Even David Price recently didn't work. Chris Sale didn't work. So he has got to be convinced to go out and spend the money. How this is a difference maker. So uh, I think Theo can do that. Yeah, and having a guy that's actually done it for him before, and he got the results when Theo was doing it, winning multiple World Series. So I think that certainly factors in as well. And hey, if you can take anything off Sam Kennedy's plate, I'm all for that because he may have had the worst. Like Tom Warner started off with a pretty bad offseason, the full throttle comments. And I don't understand why he kept trying to explain it and try to say how it's different than what he meant. Like, Dude, just take the L on that one. Move on. Don't try to stop it. And uh, don't try to talk about now pushing all the levers like you're just making this worse. And then Sam Kennedy calling the fan base liars if they don't think that they're as focused on the Red Sox. I just thought he had a horrible offseason. So I love the fact that you have somebody in here in Theo that can help out when it comes to that messaging as well. And the other part of this, too, that's interesting to me, you mentioned Breslow. And Theo, I don't want to say discovered him because obviously he played in the major leagues for a long time as a pitcher, but Theo gave him his first big league job as an executive back in 2019. And Cotillo and Sean McAdam had the note in their article that Theo was like part of the hiring process. He didn't, he wasn't approved by Major League Baseball yet to be part of the ownership group, but he was involved, which makes me feel more confident in Breslow because if Theo likes this guy, then I can like this guy because I know how good Theo is at sort of not not only just developing players, but also like developing front office guys. I think it's massive that finding out now that Theo was part of this process. And we kind of felt like, okay, they probably like him because Theo found him and gave him that first big gig with the Cubs. But now we're like, oh, Theo actually probably just made this hire himself. Yeah. And, and that's kind of where Theo is, right? I mean, in his career, like when you think about the game of baseball, the it's the Hall of Fame resume already after winning just in Boston and Chicago. But then you go to MLB and you kind of, I don't want to say save the game because it was never dead in the first place. But still, let's face it, it's helped the game. You know, yeah. the speed rules and everything else. And that meant a lot to him. So this is the type of guy that if he is as it gives a strong recommendation for somebody, given what he's already accomplished, I don't know how you ignore it. You know, so it's so, yeah, you know, I don't, I don't know how the whole thing will unfold. You know, because I, I heard he's going to be involved in like hiring the process for the, the new manager or whatever they call him, Skipper. I don't know what the hell they call him in Liverpool. So I think he'll have a hand in it. I don't know if he'll be the front man, you know, but I think he'll probably be part of the interview process. I think year one will kind of learn the industry and everything else. But um, I just know he cares about this team. He wants to turn this thing around. So all these people thinking that, 
you know, this is just a, a paycheck or a PR move or whatever. They're so jaded. They're so upset with this organization that they can't even take in any good news. And it's good news long term. Long term. Is it going to help this year's team? I doubt it. You know, he's going to walk in. If they sign Montgomery tomorrow, right, to a five year deal, buck 25, everyone's going to sit there and say it's Theo, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Theo's the one. So are you undercutting Breslow? Are you announcing to the world who's really run this organization? So it's sort of it's an interesting thing, even though I still wish they would do that. Yeah, I do too. And that's a great point, though. Theo will get so much credit if the Red Sox oh, yeah. a, a sign Montgomery or B, if they make like a big trade before the season starts, it's going to be all Theo mm-hmm. and Breslow is going to get no credit for it whatsoever, which is kind of funny right. to me. But so you mentioned with Breslow, like one of the things we heard about is how, and it's true, like all the Cubs guys that were in their minor league system, they all got better in the pitching department. And you look at some of the stuff the Red Sox have done this offseason, some of the stuff that's actually positive and not negative. And look, they've had a bad offseason. I'm the first to admit that. But, you know, you look through it. Andrew Bailey comes over from the Giants, Justin Willard from the Twins, and we know Breslow's track record. But you look at the Twins last year, fifth in ERA, third in FIP, fourth in war, first in strikeout rate, fourth in walk rate, first in strikeout to walk ratio. They had some really good seasons. Like Pablo Lopez was awesome. They've developed Joe Ryan, Bailey uh, Ober. You think about Sonny Gray had like his best season. And then you look at the Giants because, of course, that's Bailey. And they were awesome, too. Like they were first in ground ball rate. Now, a lot of that, it helps when you have Logan Webb, who's going to get a ton of ground balls. But they were fourth and fifth. They were second in home runs per nine. Obviously, they have an advantage for where they play. Alex Cobb, though, had a really good season for them. Obviously, we know that Logan Webb did, but that wasn't like a star-studded pitching staff, and they got a lot out of those guys. So I, yeah. I look at it in terms of, hey, these are good things that the Red Sox have done. But to your point about Montgomery, I look at the fact that, all right, I look at this real simple stat, which is innings pitch from your starters. The Red Sox yeah. were 20. They were 27. They were 27 That's last year. That's extremely simple for you. I'm yeah. You look at that number. Go ahead. Yeah. So, and look, I understand that, like, maybe that number would have been in the low 20s if you put, like, Pavetta's bulk games in there. But still, it was going to be pretty low. And it wasn't like, hey, this is a Tampa thing. We're just, like, bringing all these arms out of the bullpen. It was, it was because the starting pitching wasn't good, right? They were 22nd at ERA, 20th and 5th. And you mentioned Montgomery. So Montgomery, since between 2021 and 2023, he was 16th in innings. He was tied for six in starts. And I know Boris has both him and Snell, so maybe they're playing this process sort of slowly here. But then you start to think about the fact that, oh, well, he's living in Boston. Like, he kind of wants to be on the Red Sox. It's just fascinating to me. After everything that has gone on with this organization lately, he wants to be here. So I do feel like... In one sense, I'm very happy with what they're doing in terms of trying to develop pitchers because it's been the biggest issue that this organization has had for years. But secondarily, I'm thinking like we all came into the offseason knowing they needed to add a starter and all they did was add Giolito, who does sort of help the innings problem, but he's not an elite pitcher. And I just wonder, are they just going to enter the season with the crew they currently have? Yeah, so much positive going on behind the scenes, just not in the field, right? And that doesn't help fans they don't want to hear that like right like, oh, like great like this right now and this is the thing that, that it's almost like this is screaming for a bridge year right or two whatever but a bridge year like period and we're not even getting that you know you can you can implement all this infrastructure and try to improve your pitchers and that's great and maybe you'll see a bounce this year but really you know i could see them in the draft like drafting a lot more pitchers spending a lot more assets pitcher wise in the, in the amateur draft but these are things that are going to take place, and hopefully in two or three years, we won't recognize this system, right? There'll be a lot more arms. But in the meantime, that's why you're looking for this bridge. You know, you're looking for these starters. And and I don't understand it, to be frank. Like, I, I really don't understand this offseason at all because Montgomery is there, you know, and it's it's a five-year deal probably, you know. And, and, and I get it. The 3-6, three, 3-7 three, with this defense might be a 4-2. So maybe that's an ERA. Maybe that's an admission that your defense sucks. But do you plan on having your defense suck for the next four or five years? Or does, is there going to be some sort of moves to improve your defense over the next couple of years? I think it's short-sighted to kind of have that opinion on what Montgomery could be for you. And really, it kind of solves a lot. You know, if you spend on Montgomery, I feel like you solidify a rotation as far as these innings go. You know, you Hauk and Whitlock are definitely comfortable in that bullpen. And now your bullpen mm-hmm. is actually And I think you're a wild-card contender. You're a playoff contender, which is really, you know, what you need to be, you know, in this town. Without it, 
we're right back to, I don't know, is Hauk a starter? Is Whitlock a starter? And can Crawford keep it up? Can he stay healthy for another year? Without it, you're sort of one guy makes all the difference in the world. So I like what they're doing behind the scenes. I think you can see some improvements. I just, I really don't understand why this guy isn't here right now. You know, because next year, yeah. what do we look at? Like next year, you've got Bayo. And I guess hopefully Crawford continues to do this. And maybe Hauk steps up. But next year, Pavetta's a free agent. So it's like, I'd really, it doesn't make sense. Like it's the perfect fit. And everybody in baseball is saying, nationally, everybody is saying that like Montgomery's still out there. The perfect fit is actually Boston. I don't know what the hell they're doing. You know, <laughs> nobody can kind of figure this thing out. I don't, I don't get it at all. Yeah, the only things I can think of, like, I can't remember, like, it feels like the player is significantly more interested in the team than the team is interested in the player, and it should be the other way around. Like, this team desperately needs starting pitching, and I get maybe they're scared of the years or something along those lines. Maybe it's just Boris is waiting this thing out with him and Blake Snell in terms of, of course, they have the same agent, but at the same point to me, it's like, you mentioned it in terms of a wild card spot, so... Right now, they're they're the fifth best team in the division. I guess the, I should just say they're the worst team in the division instead of the fifth best. But you yeah. think about it, the past two years, okay, Arizona, last year the Red Sox had a better run differential than the Diamondbacks. The Diamondbacks got into the playoffs and they made a run. And then you think about two years ago, Philadelphia, they made a run to the playoffs. So if you just stay competitive, right, to the point where you're at the trading deadline and you can justify adding and try to make a run and get into the playoffs... Who knows what happens, right? It's not the NBA where most of the time we don't have like a heat run to the NBA finals. Most years, the best teams get to the NBA finals, right? And ultimately the best team won it last year in the Nuggets. So, and even like the Rangers, I mean, we thought down the stretch of the season, like they blew it because Houston took over the division. They end up winning the World Series. And that's another team that just kept adding. They said, hey, we're not good with just Max Scherzer. Let's get Montgomery. Ironically, let's get Montgomery too. Let's get as much pitching as possible. So I just think if you just, if, because they have, good pieces, okay? I'm not saying they have great pieces, but just to get into the postseason, and I feel like a couple additions here or there, you could do that and be a competitive team at least the whole season, and I don't know why it feels like so far they've been sitting out. Yeah, and, um, you know, I guess now the Baltimore Orioles are are a serious problem, right, with changing all because I was going into this offseason, I'm like, you know, they're going to be good, but they they haven't done anything. Now they added Corbin Burns, and and they're going to be an absolute force. I think Houston... Is still going to be a good baseball team. Uh, the Yankees, obviously, uh, Soto, Stroman, they'll be better. Uh, I don't know if they're going to be a force in the American League. The point is, is, when I look around the American League, like if you were to pull a guy like Montgomery, you pull him from Texas, who's relying on Scherzer and who's relying on DeGrom to stay healthy, and they're not even going to join you for a couple months in. You know, so you just look around at some of the competitors. Seattle, they're going to be good, but have they really vastly improved that you're really concerned? The AL Central is just its just a battle for one spot. Those, someone's going to win 88, 89 games because the division sucks. So it's like, how, can you stay in the other five spots? And the Jordan Montgomery, I think, does it. You know, what, what I don't understand is th- they're putting so much heat on these three kids down in triple, double A, you know, whether it's Teal, Anthony, and Meyer. And mm-hmm. it, it, you leave winter weekend and you're like, oh, my God. Like, they're almost publicly saying we're waiting for these guys which is like pressure on double-A kids. Number one, Meyer has, can't stay healthy. He hasn't been able to stay healthy. Anthony's 19 years old and played 10 games in double-A. You <laughs> yeah. know, and Teal, Teal could be a very good player, but, you know, it takes a while once you get to the big leagues as a catcher to kind of, you know, feel this thing out. So when will they be ready? It's almost like you're waiting for this core. And quite frankly, if you ask me, the core is already here. Like, when is the last time the Red Sox developed two starting pitchers in a rotation? You know, Bayo and Crawford. I mean, when like Lester and Buckles, I guess like, but yeah, you probably. actually have you actually have two guys that you actually developed in your system already. You got a first baseman that was rookie of the year candidate. You just traded for a young kid at second. You got Story. You got Devers. You got Yoshida. You got Duran. You got Wong and Teal. Probably in a couple of years, like you've got Whitlock and Hauk and these guys, Winkowski and Crawford, like and Bayo. Like it's hello, like it's here. It's now time yeah. to supplement. We're waiting for three position players in Double A to get there. It'll be great when they get there, but it'd be a lot better if they got there and they're jumped into a team that's been in the playoffs the last couple of years rather than walking into a clubhouse that's finished last five of the last six years and expect yeah. to be safe the entire world. And by the way, they don't pitch. Right. You know, like, honestly, like, I, I, I try to keep a really rational thought, you know, and think outside the box as a player, as a manager, a front office, like what they're waiting for, what we're building, what we're doing. And I can't figure it out. 
because I feel like you have a core of really good, young, controllable players right now, or at least guys under contract right now, that you should be supplementing. Yeah, and it's a good point, too, because the other thing I look at is you mentioned the homegrown guys that they have in terms of Bayo and Crawford. They get, And hopefully, like, one of the things that I mentioned earlier about having these resources in the pitching department now, hopefully they can help Bayo because he had real issues with lefties last season, but we know he has yeah. a ton of talent. Like, he's got to figure out his fastball against lefties. It got absolutely hit like crazy last season. So maybe that's something they helped there. But he's definitely got a ton of talent. And I do feel like he's he's sort of got that, like, elastic arm where it feels like he can just pitch for, pitch forever, right? I mean, he, he's not, like, a big guy, but it just feels like he, he can pitch forever. And I love what Crawford did, like, his mm-hmm. fastball is like legitimately one of the most effective fastballs in Major League Baseball. As crazy as that sounds, it's true. And then Pavetta, you mentioned him. This is interesting to me. Like, I love. I do too. And I would like, I, and I don't know how you feel, Lou, but I, I want an I'm with you. I don't know if he'd do it now because it's like, hey, he just developed this uh, sweeper. What do you call it? The whirly bird. Yeah. And so if you go back to when that started, the 28th of May, he had 28 appearances, eight starts, 97 and a third. Out of pitchers that threw 80 innings during that stretch. He was first in strikeout rate, 35.3%. He was 10th in ERA. He was fourth in whip. Like, he was awesome. And that pitch itself, the opponents hit 114, and they whiffed at 44.4% of the pitches they actually swung at. So to me, it's like you kind of found something with Nick Pavetta. I just, if I was representing Pavetta, I would be like, do not sign an extension right now. because. Hey, you may go into next offseason and you may get a big contract if you continue to pitch the way that you did for the majority of the season. But it just feels like to me, like you think about it, Giolito's going to eat up innings. I think Bayo's going to eat up innings and I think he's going to improve. And Crawford can eat up innings. Pavetta can eat up innings. It's like if you just get the one piece, then you're kind of looking at this like, I don't want to say they're cooking with gasoline, but it's like, okay, now this like team makes a lot more sense. It's like the obvious thing to do and they just haven't done it. And it, I just. I hope they do something here because I just feel like I don't and Lou, you're calling all these games. I just I hate in August when we're watching the games and they don't mean anything. I know they mean stuff to certain guys, but it's like that shouldn't happen for the Boston Red Sox. Okay, we've had two years of it now. Be competitive. And even 2021, it's like they decided like, okay, that felt like it was going to be a bridge year. And they made a run. And when they got into the playoffs, they made it all the way to the ALCS. So why not just give your club a chance? So I hope they do something. But At this point, do you do you think they sign Montgomery or do you think they make a trade or do you think it's just it's it's over? This is the team. Every time I keep checking back in and it's like Montgomery, Montgomery, what if the market comes down? What about it's just no, you know, it's just like I, I don't see it happening, whatever. And it's and it just continues to frustrate me because I agree with you. You know, um, when it comes to Nick Pavetta, I am either going to be proven correct or an absolute idiot because I, I think <laughs> me he's too. Have, I think he's going to have a monster year. Like, I just do. I watched him last year transform into something different. You know, the, the, taking something off that slider, whether you want to keep, I don't know, he doesn't like calling it a sweeper or whatever. He took some velocity off of it. He got swings and misses through it, uh, with it. It was, you know, we started looking at some stuff plus. Like, he he has some of the best stuff in the game. You know, he's just never really put it together. He's basically been 30 starts, four and a half ERA guy, 170 innings. But I think that ERA can dip, and, and I think he can be a sub-four guy. And it's like the thing that frustrates me is if some of these guys come out, like if Devers gets better, if Story comes back to life, if Yoshida adjusts for year two, if Casas continues to go, Bayo improves, like if a lot of things go well, you're sitting there like we wasted it. You know what I mean? Like we wasted it. And then you get to the deadline, it's going to be like, well, we're a fringe playoff team. It's going to be the same language, you know? And it's like, it's it, I don't want to chase it and we don't want to give up the future for rentals. And you're kind of in this cycle of just trying to hang on. And, and Montgomery, I think, alone just sort of makes everything better. You think about last year, everybody keeps saying, you know, the deadline, one guy wouldn't have made a difference. And, and maybe defensively, they're just so poor, it wouldn't have. But you can't survive on three and a half starters. You know, and that's the other thing. Right. Yeah, we get so sucked up into this full throttle comment, right, Brian? Because everybody was repeating it left and right. We also forgot the fact that everybody from top to bottom came out and said they need to add two starters. Everybody. Mm-hmm. Everyone. It was an admission from the manager, the front office, ownership, whatever. We need starters. We need, we're in the market. We need to add two starters. And last I checked, they lost Sale and they lost Paxton, who I guess you could say equaled one, whatever. And you replaced him with Giolito. You didn't, you didn't do that. They forget about the full throttle. 
he didn't he didn't do that. And I don't know, maybe something else will happen with a Michael Lorenzen or I I, I don't know. Um, but it's just it's like these admissions of what you need. I sort of missed the Dombrowski days when he's like, I need an ace. And then the next day he signed <laughs> Price. I need a closer, traded for Craig Kimbrell. You know, it's like tell me what you need publicly. Fine. If you're gonna do that publicly, then go out and do it. And it and that forget about full throttle. That's something that they just ignored. And now they're trying to convince us they don't need anything. It's like, well, in November, you told us you needed two starters. Now you're good. Yeah, so literally, Bre- literally, Breslow said that. He said the biggest need is starting pitching. He literally yeah. said that. Like, that's that's a yeah. direct quote from him about the starting pitching. And the other thing I felt like that they needed to add is a right-handed bat. So when free agency started, I felt like, okay, Justin Turner's probably not coming back. But the way things started to go where Teoscar Hernandez, I felt like, okay, that's that's a very good target for the Red Sox. It makes a lot of sense. When he signs elsewhere, I felt like, okay, now Turner, you don't really want to play him in the in the field a ton because we saw last year he got injured. So maybe that was part of it is they're just, they're so bad defensively to begin with. Actually, Turner was fine in the field. It's just, hey, do you want him playing out there at his age and dealing right. with the injury last year? So they traded for Tyler O'Neill, which in some sense is a lottery ticket. I know he hit the 30 bombs a couple of years ago, but the past two years he's been injured. I would like to get his workout regimen, though, because that guy's extremely big. So, But the bigger point about this is we get to see if he can stay on the field. And then you look out there and you say, okay, Jorge Soler is still out there, who had a good year, 36 bombs last year, slugged 5-12, which was 16th in Major League Baseball. The Red Sox righties, 79 home runs, 26, 393 slug, 24th. And you can say, yeah, a lot of that's about health. But Duvall has historically been an injured player. Like, that's part of his resume. Story of the past couple of years He's been injured. Now, hopefully now it's story he's healthy and he can have a decent season here. But I felt like that's another thing they could have addressed is to put somebody out in the outfield that can actually hit from four power from the right side. And unless Tyler O'Neill turns back into the guy that he was in 2021 with the Cardinals, I don't feel like they're doing that. And so I'm guessing their hope is that story gets back to, can he hit you 25, 26 home runs and maybe like, can he hit 265? Can he, I mean... He hasn't really been the same guy in a couple of years. Obviously, a lot of that has to do with the injuries. But are they relying on that improvement to come internally from a guy like Story? And that's why they didn't add the bat. Yeah, I think they are. But um, I wouldn't, you know, personally, I wouldn't count on it. You know what I mean? I would want that to be the pleasant surprise. I would want that to be the one difference maker bat that I have, you know, positioned hitting fifth or sixth that actually comes out and looks more like the guy he has in the past in Colorado, you know, and. And, you know, you look at Solaire, and I really hope they're not hiding behind the fact that the RL field's already crowded as it is, you know, because I remember the last week or two in, in the season, Cora really made an emphasis about how, you know, next year with the players, we're going to add this winter, you know, um, we're going to make some really difficult decisions in spring training, whether it be guys in a bullpen or rotation or, or outfield, infield, whatever, that have been here the last couple of years are actually probably going to be bumped down to AAA because that's how you need to build depth. So when you do call up a starter, it's not Barraclaw. You know, when you do call up a reliever, it's not, I don't know, pick a guy, you know, um, or an outfielder, pick a guy, second baseman, pick a guy that came up last year. So you get a guy like Solaire, you know, and you say, well, where does he fit? Well, okay, O'Neill, Yoshida, Duran, Solaire. You know, and listen, you were talking to one of the biggest Willier Abreu fans out there. But if I can put a team together where I have – Rafaela and Abreu and AAA just to say, hey, get your feet wet down there. Give me good 30 at-bats, extend spring training, whatever you want to call it. Get ready because we're going to need you. And then we can call you up if somebody goes down. We don't skip a beat defensively or offensively with Abreu, defensively with Rafaela. You know, if I can have a bullpen together where I can send some of these guys that have been up and down or whatever and just stash them in AAA. But I don't know if you can. You can't right now, right, because you haven't created that type of roster. I don't think there's tough decisions. As of right now, you've replaced Duvall and Turner with O'Neill and Dahlbeck. I mean, that's as of right now, he's on this team. And I just, you know, the, and again, Giolito for Paxton and Sale. Like, it's just, they haven't, they've added fringe guys. Like, they've added AAA arms that have options. That's what they've added in a lot of these trades. And they can option them down to AAA. But once again, as far as the big league team goes, I'm just looking for a bridge. I'm just looking for a Solaire for two years until Roman Anthony maybe is ready, you know, or or whatever. O'Neill leaves, you got Solaire, maybe Anthony's ready next year, whatever. But it's like, better start bridging some of these gaps. 
Yeah, I'm with you. And the Dahlback thing, I'm sorry. I can't do it. I can't watch Bobby Dahlback anymore. I know, like, right he puts now, up these gr- yeah, he puts up these great numbers at AAA. I'm like, congratulations. The guy's, like, 39 years old. I exaggerate slightly, but he's, like, he's, he's almost 30. It's not like he's a young player that was doing this at 19, 20 years old. He should be hitting AAA pitching at this point in his career. So, and the other thing I would mention, like, you talked about the outfield. I love Abreu, too. I absolutely love his approach. I mean, play discipline, like, it's ridiculous, sure. and he hits for power. I love him, too, but I just feel like, hey, once in a while, get proven guys, proven commodities that you know are going to hit you 25 to 30 home runs, and that's sort of what, say, Oscar Hernandez would have done for this team. And we know he hits the crap out of pitching in the division. Like, he was with the Blue Jays forever. Every time he played the Red Sox, I feel like he hit a home run or he hit, like, you know, he had like 10 RBIs in a series. Like he always dominated the Red Sox for whatever reason. But you know, the interesting guy to me is Yoshida in all this because minus eight outs above average, tied for 179th out of 187 outfielders. Now, he was 13th in batting average, 51st yeah. in on base, right? So, but we know that he doesn't hit the ball in the air. Ground ball rate was fifth. His launch angle was the fourth lowest, 3.9 degrees. So I just wonder... Lou, how good of a player do you think he really is? Because I think about it like with Rafael Devers, it's just aggravating. Like there's no reason you should make the fourth most errors in Major League Baseball and be as bad as you are defensively because it's a lot of concentration stuff with Rafi. And he's good enough. To, can he just be an average level defender? That's all we're asking for with the way that he hits. Like you don't need to be Nolan Arenado, but can you just not be a butcher out there? And that's what happened to Rafi last season. With Yoshida, like, I don't see, I mean, and you would know better than me, I don't see any way he's ever going to be, like, slightly below average. I think he's always going to be really below average. But I just don't see him being a good fielder. So, like, the issue I have is he's a corner outfielder that doesn't hit for power. Obviously, great bat-to-ball guy and all that. But I just wonder, like, because there was, like, some reporting, oh, maybe the Red Sox would move him. I just don't know what the value for him would be. Yeah, I don't, I don't know what the value is for him, but, you know, I, I want to see year two, you know, because I think it was a huge adjustment for him. It is kind of funny because people do, you know, they basically, you shit, people shit all over Yoshida, you know, and like you said, it was 285 year one. And, 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 and you look at other guys too, like, like Otani wasn't this, you know what I mean? He threw the shit out of the ball and hit the ball pretty well and had some pop, but he wasn't like the pure hitter that he right. is now. Um, the kid out in Suzuki, out in Chicago, like he he kind of really struggled year one as well. The year one was eye opening for him, like the travel, like this guy was worn down at times. So I'm hoping that physically, and there's no WBC. I know Japan was out to win that thing. They're probably out there. Spring training probably started January second, you know, and they go after it. You know, I spent time over there one year over there. This spring training, man, they they get after it hard. So. How worn down was this guy? I want to see what year two looks like. Defensively, um, he's not fast. You know, I think you see effort from him. You know, it's not like it's not like a fly ball to him. I, I feel like he's going to just clank it every time the ball is hit. I feel like he's going to catch it. But I do feel like, you know, going back on balls at, at Fenway, there's a couple of right over his headline drives. You felt like, oh, man, if there's a better break, he could have got it. Uh, he is what he is. So if he can slightly improve, I think they're going to be talking about positioning. They're going to. You know, hopefully the spray charts and where this guy can be to get the better jumps can help. Devers is the one to me. I mean, Devers is a guy last year, if you remember, like the first five or six weeks, I thought he was fantastic at third. Yeah. And then when he makes, he'll make a for he'll make an error because everybody does in the league. Well, it's a tough play, tough hop, maybe bad read. And then if he makes another one within two or three games, the next thing you know, you look up and he's got eight, you know, and it's like, you know, he's been in the league a long time. Um, when he makes a couple of errors, it snowballs on him. It gets in his dome, you know, and, and that is an area that they really need to talk to him about. I know there's some pre-pitch stuff that they're trying to kind of get him uh, a little bit more mobile or get his feet moving a little bit. You know, Casas, the same thing, you know, but then again, he's a rookie. So year one, there's always adjustments to be made. So you're curious what he looks like. So those those guys defensively have to be better, you know, and I, that's why I think Turner's not here. I mean, Breslow came out in the beginning and said, I want to rotate DHs. I don't want to have a standard DH. So right from the beginning, right. you knew Justin wasn't coming back. And then when Turner signs with the Blue Jays, it's, ah, oh, the Red Sox too cheap. They can't even call him back. It's like, they told you he wasn't coming back. They told you he had no interest in bringing him back. Right or wrong, whether you agree or not. So I just don't think they were going to go there with a guy like Yoshida. They'd probably like to get out in the field 60, 70 games and left. 
Yeah. Well, in the way that you describe the Turner thing now, it kind of reminds me of a couple of years ago when in a vacuum you could justify like letting Hunter Renfro go because he's a flawed player. But you could say, OK, but Jackie Bradley Jr. can't be your starting right fielder to start the season. Right. And that's no. what the Turner thing feels like to me. You can justify letting Turner go because you don't want to play him in the field a lot. It's just like, what's the corresponding move? Like the Red Sox never made the corresponding move when they sent Renfro to the Brewers. We'll see if they make a move now. I mean, they still have time to do something. But if I was guessing, and I hope I'm wrong about this, I'd say no. All right. So, Lou, before I let you go, I got to ask you, because I remember when I was growing up, like Pedro was appointment television, like every time he was on, like you wanted to be, you wanted to watch the game. I do feel like Sale had this like effect for like yep. maybe his first season here when he had the 300 strikeouts, like you wanted to watch Sale every time he was pitching. But what was Pedro like to play with? Because, I mean, he was a perform like Sale's just like was a gritty competitor. Pedro was like a performer out there. What was he like? Like when he was, is he one of these guys that you couldn't talk to or like during the, during the day of the start, what was he like to be around? Yeah. You didn't really talk to him on his starts and, and it wasn't like somebody that you had to avoid eye contact because he did, you know, he, he just, he was never, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like he would just never look up. Like even as a player, as a teammate of his, we were excited about like his starts, you know, because you just, you never knew what was going to happen, especially, you know, because 98 was my first year, first year here. So that was my rookie year. It's his first year. So 98, 99, 2001, it was just on a nightly basis. Is he going to throw a no hitter? Is he going to punch out 17? Um, you know, is the team going to so-called, you know, get him tonight? Is he going to give it up and give up three in six innings? Like that's him giving it up, you know, uh, that's the whole thing with like the Yankees. They're like, Yankees are my daddy. Yeah, because they put up three or four runs on. You know, nobody yeah. ever did. But like they banged him around for eight or nine every single time he went out there. But um, it was just a show. You know, like I, I love playing second short behind him. Um, there was pressure, too, because I didn't want to screw it up. You know, I knew this guy was going to deal. And my job was to just make that routine play because he's going to get most of his guys out. He's going to punch out half of the lineup. You know, um, every inning is going to be one or two punch outs, made your life easier as an infielder. But he was an absolute assassin. You know, it was fun to watch. Um, and, you know, I see him now and it's just he's such a good guy now too. you know, like what everything he does back home. And just when you talk to a very personable man. So happy for him, lucky to be playing with him. And it was uh, every night was a show. Yeah. And the Yankees numbers like being worse, it's. Well, you play them yeah. so much, and like they were just coming off a dynastic run. So, of course, good. his numbers are going to be worse against the Yankees than every other team. It's not like the Yankees had his number. It's just like the Yankees at that point in time had everybody's number. Yeah, and Matsui, like that's the guy that I always thought whenever he came up against the Sox. I always thought that he was going to get a hit every time. All right, Lou, and can you confirm this report? I don't know if it's true or not, but so you and Bill Belichick are going to start a pod? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think um, I would enjoy that too much. Although it'd be an honor, you know. But I don't uh, listen. I I I liked you know interviewing him was always an interesting moment. It was a very stressful moment in my life, and I know it, people always like you hate Belichick. I didn't hate Belichick. It's just that you know Fourier played with him. Ordway was like best friends with him. So I'd ask him about Malcolm Butler, or I'd ask him about a lot of things, you know. Right. And uh, I had a follow up, and he didn't like it. And and but yeah, whatever. I, you do an interview, so. It was an honor. I mean, interviewing that man was the greatest, one of the greatest coaches of all time. But uh, no podcast in the future. Uh, it'd be interesting to see what he does, like media wise, and what he is going to be like. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see where he lands. But I do remember too, like the season that Cam was having, and you yeah. asked him about uh, Jared Stidham. Like, is he going to start? And he, he, and he's like, that's oh, the same answer, Lou. And you're like, well, he's like, nothing's changed. You're like, well, yeah, you're out of playoff contention. And he's like, yeah, oh, that's the same like, answer. It's like, you're still playing him and you're out of the playoffs. Why don't why don't you give the other guy a chance? And Bill's like, yeah. it's the same answer. It's like, actually, things have changed, coach. And so your first interview with him, too, was the but like after the Butler Super Bowl, right? Like the next season. One of them, I believe. If that, I don't know if that was year one. It might have been year two. But I remember being like, and and I asked him about it. But, you know, he's like, doors open. I'm like, so did he ever, you know, all my players, doors open. I'm like, well, any, did any of other players go in and talk to you about it or ask you why and it's just, you know because again like it's one word answer right or a grunt and so you have to have, you have to follow up and you have to you have to ask the question you have to do your job like he doesn't have to he can say whatever the hell he wants i don't care if he grunts six times at me but you have to ask the question you have you know it's 
And it, it was so funny, the reaction of it, you know, like, why'd you guys punt? Oh, he's such an asshole, Marloni. Why'd you ask him that? Why? I asked him if he, why he punted. Like, why am I an asshole? For <laughs> why they didn't call a timeout? Like, I don't understand. <laughs> like, any yeah. other coach, you, you'd be shredded for not asking that question. You asked it to him and people, boy, they would freaking light me up. But yeah, whatever. It's, it's I don't know. It's a legitimate question. That's why I asked. I can't wait to see that documentary that comes out on Apple too. Like it seems yeah. like it's going to be pretty juicy. By the way, now that you mentioned Butler, what what was uh, Ordway's take? Wasn't his take that it was a safety heavy game plan or something? That's why Butler didn't play. Like he, didn't he have it a was, weird? His take was that um, he was a bad player, and that they felt like they were better off not playing. And I'm like. So, like, obviously the first half didn't go well. You know what I mean? Like, I if they sat the first half and played the second half, you know, I, I would actually, you know, there's, there's theories on that. And, again, when, when things don't make sense, you start, like, really wondering, like, your mind starts going crazy, right? Like, when an owner says full throttle and you actually cut payroll, you know, your mind starts, okay, what the hell just happened? And, and yeah, the take was basically that he was a bad player, even though he played, what, 98, 99% of the right. snaps the week before. And he's like, well, he was bad in that game. I'm like, I know, but at least he, he kept playing. Like, you take, don't you run with that guy in the next one? So, Yeah, but, and uh, and the Patriots, apparently, they didn't think he was a bad player until the final game of the season. All year they thought right. he was good. And then they said, hey, he's not good anymore. <laughs> yeah, the Super Bowl, that's it. We're going to bench you uh, because you haven't been playing well. You know what I mean? Like, like, like how many guys like have bad weeks and don't get benched the next one, especially starters. You know what I mean? They had a bad week. Okay. You show up the next week and you play better refocused. But yeah, I, I never, I still don't to this, to this day. I still don't know what the hell happened there. Just theories, me, but yeah, me neither. I hope there's something about it in the documentary, but I don't, I don't think there'll be too much. All right. No. That is Lou Maloney from Nesson and WEI. You'll hear him and you'll see him on the Red Sox broadcast all season long. Lou, thank you so much for the time, man. Appreciate it as always. Brian, anytime, buddy. Good to see you. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Great stuff there from my buddy Lou Merloni. Always enjoy talking socks with Lou. And nice to talk about Bill Belichick, too, in terms of the interview experiences he had with Bill. I mean, Bill Bill now, he took out the full page in the Globe, which I thought was cool, basically thanking all the fans. And I thought one interesting thing that he said in that is, Nowhere in America are pro sports fans as passionate as in New England. For 24 years, I was blessed to feel your power. And so I really like appreciate Bill taking out the ad, thanking the fans. And I did think it was interesting, too. He said, you may have enjoyed my fashion sense in press conferences, or maybe you just tolerated them. So a little humor in Bill's ad as well. So I thought that was cool that he took out the full page ad. I didn't say, oh, that's corny, Brian, that you like. No, I thought it was cool. I thought that, you know, he's thanking the fans. I appreciated it. Okay. So a couple of other Patriots notes. So it's clear that Elliot Wolf is now running things. We talked about Alex Van Pelt on the Thursday pod or the Friday pod taking over as the offensive coordinator. Well, he was with Elliot Wolf when they when Elliot Wolf was in Green Bay. And then there's now this report from Albert Breer that the Patriots are in discussions to add Ben McAdoo to the offensive coaching staff. So McAdoo was with Elliot Wolf in Green Bay as well. And with Ben McAdoo, the only, you know what I keep thinking of with Ben McAdoo is I haven't, first of all, I hadn't heard his name in ages, but remember when he did that like introductory press conference with the Giants and he had this suit that was just way too big. That's what I think about every time I hear Ben McAdoo is he just had two things. He had the huge suit and then secondarily that play sheet that he had. Remember how big his play sheet was? Mike Lombardi used to always make fun of it. It was huge. He called it like the Cheesecake Factory menu. It was massive. So that's what I think of when I think of Ben McAdoo. Obviously, not a lot of success as a head coach. 13 and 15, his two years with the Giants. He did make the playoffs one year. And remember, they had that whole boat trip, Odell Beckham Jr. and the receivers. Just a weird scenario there. Last year, he was the offensive coordinator in Carolina. And obviously, Frank Reich's the play caller there. But if you had like told me that, like that, Ben McAdoo was the offensive uh, offensive coordinator last year in Carolina. I, w- I would have been like, oh, really? I didn't even know that. I honestly didn't even know that. But hey, so if you look at him in terms of as a coordinator or a head coach, just one top 10 offense in terms of yards. So the idea is basically it's they want experience around Gerard Mayo. And Elliot Wolf is now, since Bill has left, Elliot Wolf is now taking over this organization. He's the one that is with Gerard Mayo doing these interviews and look at these hirings or look at the hiring of Van Pelt, 
he's a guy that has a connection. Now, looking at McAdoo, he's a guy that has a connection with Elliot Wolf. So this whole idea, I do think, and I mentioned this, I can't remember when, what pot it was, but I think it's a good idea to get experience around Gerard Mayo. We'll see if Ben McAdoo brings good experience, but it feels like that's what this is about, is they just want more experience around Mayo. So anyway, like the idea of McAdoo offensively doesn't inspire me. Bryce Young last year, 40th of 45 quarterbacks in play action rate, and his expected completion percentage was 61.3%, which was the fourth lowest. So yes, a lot of the issues in Carolina, you blame on the personnel, but if you just look at these numbers, they weren't scheming guys open. They weren't helping their young quarterback at all. And like I said, they, that team was terrible. They did not have a lot of talent, but they certainly didn't help the young quarterback. So I don't really know how much Ben McAdoo is going to help this team. I just, I find it interesting that Elliot Wolf is basically now in control running this whole operation. Speaking of which, Jeff Howe from The Athletic had this note. If it's Elliot Wolf running the show, which I think we all appear, or it appears to all of us right now that he is, expect the Patriots to give a long, hard look at drafting a left tackle with the number three pick. Okay, this to me, I know Joe Alt from Notre Dame is considered to be like this can't-miss prospect. This would be insane. Like if they want to try to go after Baker Mayfield or something along those lines, this whole thing would be insane to not draft a quarterback with the third overall pick. I think back to Bill Parcells. When Bill Parcells was running the Dolphins, and he said... After the fact, maybe we should have drafted Matt Ryan instead of Jake Long. Jake Long was a great player for a bunch of years until the injuries started to pile up. But Matt Ryan, and he won an MVP in 2016. I'm not saying that he was always an elite quarterback, but he was a franchise quarterback for 15 years in the league. He was a good player for a significant amount of time. And instead, you drafted a tackle. And Miami, I mean, I guess they think two is the guy. I'm not so sure two is the guy. But you get my point. Is like they really haven't had... A franchise quarterback since then like I mean you got to go back to like what Dan Marino really I mean you start to think about some of the guys that they've had even more recently the Ryan Tannehill thing didn't work out for them so if they just had Matt Ryan think about the Miami Dolphins that organization may look a lot differently than it does right now right so that's my whole point when I look at this and it's like you have three quarterbacks at the top and Joe Alt may be uh, all pro tackle, make a bunch of pro bowls and like legitimately make them, not like the eighth add-on and make all pro teams. But what if the quarterback is just an elite level quarterback, right? So if you don't draft, say hypothetically, Jaden Daniels and Jaden Daniels becomes a franchise quarterback for the next 15 years, even if Joe Alt is a franchise left tackle, you still would have missed out on the quarterback. And there's no guarantee that the Patriots are going to be drafting in the top three next year. There's no guarantee that there is going to be a quarterback third overall next year or in the top five next year that is as good as Jaden Daniels. Like next year's quarterback class is not as good as this year's. So you have to take the quarterback. And the other thing I would just say to that, and look, this is just some reporting from Jeff Howe. It's not like, oh, Elliot Wolf's definitely drafting the tackle. I'd be shocked. Like even if he's interested in drafting a tackle, I would be shocked if they didn't draft the quarterback here. So I just want to make that clear. But the other thing I would say is this. If you essentially... Draft the tackle, okay? It'll always be, well, what's the quarterback doing, right? Like, if you mess up the quarterback pick, like, say Jaden Daniels just doesn't work out, it's not going to be about, oh, you missed out on Joe Alt, right? It's just going to be like, oh, the quarterback's a bust, you're going to draft another one. If if you draft a tackle and the quarterback's incredible, it's like, you drafted a left tackle and you didn't draft Jaden Daniels or Drake May was there at three, you didn't draft Drake May and Drake May's a great player. So I just feel like, to me... It just doesn't really make much sense that the Patriots would actually go in the direction where they didn't draft the quarterback at number three. All right, let's bring in producer extraordinaire, Jamie McClellan. Jamie, what's going on, man? How are you? I'm great, Brian. How you doing? I'm doing well. I see you have the cutoff Patriots sweatshirt going. Is that an honor of Bill taking out the ad in the Boston Globe? Uh, it might be. It might be. I liked it as well. I thought it was funny, Brian, how many... Uh exclamation points that were in that advertisement. I was like, I don't think I've ever seen Bill use an exclamation point in real life before. Yeah, I know. That is <laughs> funny. It did have a lot of exclamation marks, yeah. you know? But hey, you got to show your appreciation, right? I appreciate Exclamation it. marks are weird too. Like sometimes now it's like, hey, if you don't put an exclamation mark in your text, it's like, oh, is this person mad at me? You know? <laughs> yeah. Exclamation marks. Are, yeah, it's almost become just like, hey, you have to put an exclamation mark. Like, nice exclamation mark. Well, he didn't He didn't put the, he just said nice. He didn't put the exclamation mark, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, he's he thinking about it. So. so what do you think about this Elliot Wolf situation? It's his team now, it feels like. 
Well, I was reading that, you know, he's one of the few outsiders that they've brought in in the past decade or whatever, basically. And I think that's good. I think they need to shake it up in terms of who's calling the shots and stuff. So do I want them to draft a left tackle? No. But do I think it's good? And, you know, coming from the Packers, I feel like the Packers obviously have had a lot of success over the years. So I think uh, some fresh blood is a good idea. Yeah. And the other thing that I would say about Elliot Wolf is if you look at it, so I much rather it be him than grow, right? Because I feel like yeah. Matt Grow has been, to your point, in the Patriots ecosystem forever. Now, I wish they had just like looked at candidates externally. That's the thing that I still don't understand about this whole nice. process when it comes to the GM. But I do like the fact that Elliot Wolf's only been here for what, a handful of years now, not even that. Like, so he has a lot of different experience with the Packers mm-hmm. and stuff along those lines, where I do think that's a benefit that you got somebody from the outside. I don't know if his dream team of Van Pelt and McAdoo makes me too excited, <laughs> but I do like the fact that it's somebody else that's calling the shots and not somebody that we're all familiar with in terms of somebody that's been in the Belichick tree forever. Yeah, I can't tell with uh, Van Pelt. It seems like it seems like he's a great guy. Everyone seems to like him a lot, whether or not he's like a slam dunk. Like, it sounds like he was the last guy they interviewed, which is kind of like a fishy thing. Like, why did it take that long to talk to him if he was like your high on him in the first place? You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I can't remember who uh, where I was reading it from. He's got like some quirks, too. I, I can't remember. It could have been Phil Perry, NBC Sports Boston. It could have been The Athletic. I forget who had the story, but I just remember reading it on Friday that like when his quarterbacks are in the shotgun, he has the opposite. He has like the left foot forward or something, like some weird quirks <laughs> that he has in terms of like how he wants his quarterbacks like in the shotgun. So we'll see, man. Like I like the fact that he's been in like some different uh, different organizations like he was with Green Bay and then yeah. he was with the Browns. I think Kevin Stefanski is a good offensive mind. So I like the fact that he's got experience like in different sort of places, but we'll see how it works out. But it, it was interesting to me. I mean, this guy comes in and all of a sudden, like less than 24 hours after interviewing, he's got the job. We had this process going on f- forever. And then all of a sudden it's like, OK, Alex Van Pelt is the guy. So Obviously, it didn't take Elliot Wolf much convincing. Like, this is probably the guy that Elliot Wolf was targeting or something. Like, yeah. he's probably like, hey, Gerard, you got to talk to this guy. Because as we found out, like, Elliot Wolf's in all these meetings. He's like, Gerard, you got to talk to this guy. Mayo talks to him. I'm guessing Mayo's impressed with his interview as well. And he says, okay, let's go in this direction. But it is fascinating to me that after all these interviews, after all these guys that were like part of the McVeigh coaching tree, it's like, oh, yeah, we're going with this guy. And it's like, wait, what? How did this How did this happen so quickly? Yeah, I guess, I guess they wanted... Um... I don't know, like an older voice in the room. Like they got so many young guns and stuff like that. It, it'll be good, I guess, because of all of his experience, like versus Nick Cayley, who's, you know, never done this before. But I don't see why they couldn't have brought in maybe both of them, you know, work in tandem, like quarterbacks, coach, offense coordinator. Uh, I Well, I, Cayley's not going to make a lateral move. I mean, bring him in as offense coordinator and bring in Van Pelt as like the quarterbacks coach or something like that. Oh, yeah. Interesting. I wonder if Van Pelt would do that, like yeah. come here to be second in command. I just after, I don't understand after, what went down in Cleveland where they're like, we liked him, but we kind of fired him. It's like, what, what does that mean? Yeah, well, there has been some reporting around that in Cleveland that it wasn't Stefanski that made that decision. Like uh, that was right. coming from higher ups. <clears throat> so that I, was I think that was part of it there. But yeah, it's odd though. who he knows? Got, he, got, he got dealt a pretty tough hand with like, I think they, what, they had five quarterbacks this year. Yeah, and I, they got Flacco to work, as I was talking about the other night. So we'll see, but it's such an important hiring for Mayo because obviously that's not his side of the ball. Right. I'll say this, I was shy. If you if you said, hey, you can have uh, 25, or you, if you told me you can have 50 guesses who the offensive coordinator is going to be, maybe eventually I would like make the connection <laughs> with know. Elliot Wolf, yeah. but I would have never guessed Van Pelt would be the guy. Uh, no, I, I, he was not on my radar either. And I, I also love that we're, we're going after the... Carolina Panthers offensive minds. Like, can you have all the teams that you'd pick? Like, are you kidding me? That was the worst offense I've ever seen in my life. Well, it's funny. Like, you you hire a guy from the worst special teams unit, and then you hire a guy from, like, one of the worst (laughs) offenses. It's kind of funny. Jesus. Yeah. All right, Jamie. Good stuff, man. Thank you, Brian. As always, make sure to get your voicemails in, 617-396-7172. Email your thoughts and questions to offthepike at gmail.com. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Strudy for producing this podcast, and we'll talk in a couple of days.
Must be 21 plus and present in select states. FanDuel is offering online sports wagering in Kansas under an agreement with Kansas Star Casino, LLC. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit fanduel.com slash RG in Colorado, Iowa, Kentucky, Michigan, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Tennessee, Vermont, and Virginia. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text NEXT STEP to 53342 in Arizona, 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat in Connecticut, 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana, 1-800-522-4700 or visit ksgamblinghelp.com in Kansas, 1-877-770-STOP in Louisiana, visit mdgamblinghelp.com org in Maryland, visit 1800gambler.net in West Virginia, or call 1-800-522-4700 in Wyoming. Hope is here. Visit gamblinghelplinema.org or call 800-327-5050 for 24-7 support in Massachusetts, or call 1-877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY in